Welcome to the Movement Podcast. This show is all about movement. We tackle it from different angles, bring on guests, answer questions, go on a few tangents, and give practical advice, giving you guys a better idea of how you can optimize the human body to be the best it can be. Let's preview what's coming up in this episode. This week, we discuss HIIT training, or high-intensity interval training. This popular form of exercise is often used as a strategy to maximize caloric burn. Gray and Lee discuss why strength coaches use this with professional athletes, the importance of proper form, and how to integrate correctives into a HIIT workout. The guys close with their insight on CrossFit, and what the brand has gotten right, and what they may have gotten wrong. This is a great episode, and it hits home for me as a previous box owner. I'll be sharing it with my friends, and we hope that you do the same. So let's get started with today's Movement Podcast, powered by FMS. One reminder, this is the last week to take advantage of the exclusive deal we're running for our listeners who want to become FMS 1 and 2 certified. Use promo code POD20 to save a total of $239. Go to functionalmovement.com events and sign up now. So HIT training has been around for a number of years, really 40, 50s. You could probably argue going back thousands of years, really. <laughs> Before people were really training, they were probably doing some high intensity stuff. But it seems over the last several years, it's definitely become more popular, maybe because of CrossFit and its popularity, but it's been around long before CrossFit. It's something that comes up in fitness conversations so frequently that people forget to ask the important question that Simon Sinek asked is, why? Start with why. Now, um, here's how it started for me and a couple of the strength coaches that I've had a conversation about this with. If you worked in a fitness center that had the uh, Nautilus equipment, you had a line of equipment that had chopped up the body into body parts. And the way you would prescribe exercise is you would be the pin puller and rep counter. And you'd walk somebody down the line and they would do between eight and 12 reps. If they couldn't make eight, you would lower the weight. And if they could do more than 12, you'd increase the weight and you would have them probably do a set to what we would call failure, almost failure. And we would do that at YMCA's and fitness clubs to make extra money while we were in college getting an extra science degree. Well, what was the purpose of that? Uh, what was the purpose of those people back then? Because you're probably talking about 80s, probably even in the 70s is when that was became really popular, that type of training. Arthur Jones was yep. the, the Nautilus guy. Number one, the Nautilus cam gave you even weight distribution throughout the range of motion. They thought that was good, but that never happens in life. But most people were doing that, Gray, for what? To look better. They were. Trying to get hypertrophy. It was an aesthetic purpose. But you know what? Behind the scenes, it was a smart play because anytime Americans can put crap on a conveyor belt instead of have craftsmanship, they do. All right. So we're we're Ford Motor Company. We're not Mercedes Benz. We don't hand assemble anything anymore. We put it on assembly line and hope it works out okay. And we make adjustments on the line. But if you think about it, Lee. Um, one of the reasons I think a lot of successful NFL strength coaches adopted HIT training, take out the Nautilus, insert hammer strength, right? Yep. Now we got a station for you to do one set to failure. What's failure? Okay. Cause failure for a good strength coach means loss of technique. Failure for Joe public means 
my neck is hurting and I can't breathe I can, anymore. I can't physically do it again. <laughs> and long before you make that statement, right, your technique is thrown out the right. window. Right. So we always do this little IBR filter of everything. What's your intent? What's your behavior? What's your result? And the funny thing is, if you think about- What is up with you and the acronyms? IBR? Yeah, it's you know, military and stuff like that. But no, it helps me remember it. So what's the intent? And I think the original intent of HIT training when used for pro athletes was protection. All right. If we go all the way back to, you know, some teams that made it to the Super Bowl, movement screens have been dropping for a few years. So if you've got a good movement screen and you do hammer strength or Nautilus training, it may not hurt your movement. If you've already got a global movement problem, like your squat, your hip hinge, your lunge, your pull, pull, push, whatever is broken, then what you're going to do is never confront that movement issue in HIIT training. And maybe that's better if you don't have time to fix it. So if we have a HIIT training NFL team and a non and a free weightlifting NFL team, the HIIT training is going to get everybody through physical conditioning a little bit quicker. They're not going to confront serious mobility and stability issues, but they are going to create a metabolic load. And if they understand failure is loss of technique, not loss of capacity, then they're probably not going to create so much lactic acid you can't recover. All right. So let me, let's me let back up for a second, Gray. And, and what is HIT training? It's high intensity training, but Let's let's dive. Let's discuss what exactly it is. Well, it also became something else. It was originally HIT training, high intensity training. There's another I that gets added to the word, and it gets repackaged and put into fitness centers and boxes, and it's called high intensity interval training. And basically, what a lot of people end up doing, not what they intend to say, but they end up basically doing a lift that they may or may not know very well or be prepared for to failure. And somehow they think they're going to have a Jason Bourne experience. And what I mean by that is they're going to wake up and just have abilities that they didn't have when they went to bed. No, that guy had amnesia. He, he trained for everything that he did. And so you're not going to get strong and not know how you got there. And so I think sometimes we've been sold the fact that if we just get a good beat down, we'll come back stronger. But the, goal, the real goal for HIT training, if you do it properly, is to... Train both your anaerobic and your aerobic systems properly. That's the goal. And if you're doing it correctly, the secret of the HIIT training is the, uh, the, um, allow, allow, the allowance of recovery, allowing the person to recover the right amount of time. And that's why a good strength coach can be extremely successful in doing HIIT training. But they give you that opportunity to recover. Exactly. And when you're under the uh, watchful eye of a strength coach, no matter what modality you're doing, the minute your state of readiness or physical production drops, they don't yell at you or ask you to do more. They're like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? So they're always watching that baseline. But Joe Public consuming this has no choice but to try harder, even when they're incompetent. And that's not a good place to try harder. I mean, I've tried to hit a golf ball harder when I'm not hitting them well. Nobody they, wants to see you hit a golf ball. <laughs> they, they usually get worse when you, when you try harder at that. Now, let me bring one other thing in play. We've got more musculoskeletal risk factors than we've ever had before, ever. And at one point in time, I think exercise was 
taken over by exercise scientists. Most of them worried about your mitochondria, your VO2 max, your lean body mass, all the physiological or metabolic things. We're yeah, past I that. haven't used the Krebs cycle in a long time. Yeah, we're past that. The number one thing that's going to keep you from doing something you want to do in your physical life is a musculoskeletal risk factor. Metabolic risk factors are highly associated, but if you've, like I said, if you're limping on your cardiac stress test, you got two problems, biomechanical and metabolic. And so when we go into a population that doesn't have a lot of musculoskeletal risk factors or biomechanical problems, you can pretty much throw loads on their metabolic system. And like you said, as long as they get enough time to rest, their metabolism will actually regulate. But if you've got mechanical errors that you don't even know you have, you're actually compounding a movement risk factor even though your metabolism might be getting better. So yeah, I'm dropping weight, but I throw my back out once a month. Yeah, so I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong with HIIT training. Again, nothing wrong with HIIT training, because I think sometimes, you know, when we're, at, we're having these conversations, you know, we're, we're really staying true to our principles and people, you know, hear, well, Gray's just, you know, being negative Nelly over there. No, it's not at all what you're saying. What you're saying is HIIT training done correctly, is what has to happen. And you have to make sure the person is ready to go into that environment. And for the strength coaches that have made that choice, we're just going to do HIIT training. I think these are smart guys. They're very, very aware that Olympic-style lifting or some plyometrics would easily be more sports-specific and maybe more productive. But every day, they go home to a family that they got to support. And if you injure somebody in conditioning, you are going to get fired. If you take a starter out of the lineup and it wasn't during a mishap in practice, a mishap in the weight room, you're going down. And so I think a lot of the choices toward hit in professional athletics, when people use that analogy, will they do it in the pros? They do it in the pros to do no harm. It is a great way to get a metabolic stress without a musculoskeletal confrontation. But it doesn't really have the corrective capacity of learning to deadlift or learning to do a kettlebell swing. That, it, and, that, and so don't assume correction. It's a, it's a protective choice. It's a risk-reward Well, and the person that wants to go into the gym to do some high-intensity training, that, and again, they don't even know what they call it, hit training, whatever, they know that they want to lose some weight and doing high-intensity training, metabolic training. I mean, I've even heard it called, I'm doing my metabolic training today to decrease, um, to, to get some fat loss, there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is their technique is going to falter, and they need to make sure they're doing it correctly. Whatever like you mentioned, deadlifts, kettlebell swings, um, squats, lunges—all these are, are kind of ingrained in this. You know, I use probably deadlifts may not be the right one using this interval high intensity training. But I think the one piece of advice I would give somebody out there is when you start to feel like you're you're it's you're wearing off, whether you're at eight reps or five reps. Stop. Exactly. <laughs> Don't go any further. Don't go that extra one or two reps because that extra one or two reps are probably not going to give you any benefit. That's right. And, and, and believe it or not, and just you, no matter what you do, if you're not moving and you move more, there's going to be a chemical satisfaction there. Okay. You can get a runner's high with really shitty form or really good form. Okay, you can be poking holes in the ground with your flat-footed gait and still be able to survive it enough if you've got enough knee wraps and soft shoes to actually get a runner's high from a metabolic expenditure and still do yourself harm in the long run. So, so we understand that we want 
people to move and we want them to feel those satisfaction benefits of a single bout of exercise. But long term, that daily satisfaction of poor technique is going to wind up putting you at risk or making you inefficient for growth. Well, one thing you say right there that I'm going to pick out a little bit is you said daily. And I think that's another misconception is if you do high intensity training the way it's supposed to be done, you're not doing it daily. You've got to have that. You've got to change up something that very next day to, again, the secret of high-intensity training is giving yourself that chance to recover, not only the day after, but even during the session. Well, when we issued the plan for today's workout, nobody sent that memo out. We assume every day is 100% expenditure. And I I, I said this in a a military talk I was doing for uh, SOCOM, Special Operations Command, is this, we got to tell these guys- the acronym. Yeah, we got to tell these guys that- you know, there's things we do in, in boot camp that test you, but what got you here won't keep you here. So we will test drive you every now and then. We will push you to that limit, but we don't have to do that every day, nor is it in your best interest. Now, there's a point where you got to prove yourself, but once you're on the other side of that, we spend way more time tuning race cars than we do racing race cars, and people don't get that. Race cars do not stress themselves every day. They stress themselves at competition, and they're tuned and tweaked every day in between there. Well, one thing about high-intensity training that I think does, again, I I do it a couple times a week, and that's about all I can stand right now at my age. Um, The other times, I'm doing more things to tweak my system. Um, But I think it does create that variety. And I think with done right, that's one thing. You, you can't go in there and just do the lower body today, high intensity. You've got to do something. So and that's the thing about HIT training is you've got to create some variety in that one bout of exercise. And, and, and that's good. And if that variety is within your competency wheelhouse, then somebody is pretty smart. The minute that variety is done for variety's sake and not for integrity's sake, then you're watching a show that <laughs> you right, should so be let's, watching. <laughs> let's take a, a typical situation that, that I did a lecture a few days ago and got this question. It's how do you integrate a corrective into a high-intensity bout of exercise? I can, and I think, go ahead. All right, no, I can tell you this right now. If, if I were to throw this out, and, and I'm, I don't know if I've ever asked you this before, if I looked at the, if you could back squat and you could deadlift, and let's just take it right to strength conditioning for a minute, I can take it to personal training. But if, if you were competent in a back squat and a deadlift, which, mostly speaking, should be a heavier weight? Deadlift. I would think so too. When you see somebody whose squat exceeds their deadlift, that's a little rare. That's like somebody's been doing too much squat, not enough deadlift. So if if you're having back, hip, knee, and ankle problems, I can actually deadlift you safely. All right, with with adjustments in weight and range more than I can squat. And if we both agree that your natural ratio of deadlift to squat should be, you should be able to deadlift more than you should squat. There are a few natural born squatters, okay, but for the most part. If you trained equally, one will always be more than the other. The minute you invert that ratio, you got a problem. So I could basically not even tell you, Lee, to stretch, mobilize, foam roll, and take back squats away from you. Take leg press, front squats, single leg squat, pistols, everything away from you and say, learn to deadlift. Learn to straight bar deadlift. Learn to single leg deadlift. Learn to deadlift and use your hip hinge with elegance. And if your hip hinge is stronger, maybe you won't have to compensate in your squat. 
anymore. If on the other side of that good deadlift, we still see some range of motion problems in your squat, now I don't blame it on your back and hip strength. I blame it on your ankle mobility and posture and some things like that. But there's a natural ratio that occurs in the minute you invert that ratio, deleting the squat is actually more important than any corrective we could do. And we could correct that squat without ever going into corrective simply by saying it's time to deadlift. And you'd say, well, I've heard people hurt their back deadlifting. People have hurt their back sneezing. So, <laughs> so. <laughs> well, again, under the watchful eye of the right, the right person and making sure you can do it correctly. But, but to take it a step further, you take a person who's got horrible upper back mobility. Their upper back mobility is bad. Their shoulders say they're, you know, they understand that. Whether it's their upper back mobility or ankle mobility, but let's just look at upper back mobility. Their shoulder mobility is not good. They can still do HIIT training. They can still do high intensity training. And you and I both would probably argue, I'll ask you, I'll, I'll give you my opinion. I could do what you just described. Do some deadlifting, do some type of lunging, something, but in between the reps, in between the different exercises, add in something that's going to tap on that mobility for my shoulder. And you better believe you need to get better shoulder mobility before you go deadlift anyway, but doing those, those type of things, and don't call it corrective exercise. You're just doing a workout. And that workout is doing something to tap on that weakness. So our example, shoulder mobility, do some shoulder mobility work, do some deadlift work or lunges or whatever you want to do, come back and hit that shoulder mobility. And one thing you would probably say, and I know you would say this, is that shoulder mobility for those people who really need it is high intensity training. Totally. Your, your corrective can issue quite a bit of load that you don't understand. And, and, I've seen a lot of very important throws work with some quarterbacks that we had to work on that T-spine mobility and that shoulder mobility just to help them cover their sport. And they always looked at me crazy and said, so why am I... I'd look at you crazy quite often. I, 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 I love that look because it's the way most people look at me, but I would give them a farmer's carry. And they're like, why am I doing this? And I'm like, you're naturally slouching and hunching way more than you used to. But I show them a video of what they look like in a farmer's carry. And they're like, my posture looks great. I'm like, because you can't carry and slouch at the same time. And so if we get your shoulder mobility and T-spine mobility and don't give you an anti-slouch situation where you automatically hold yourself in a better upper carriage posture, then how are we hitting save on the document we just wrote? So when people see those counterintuitive things, you can't carry with bad form. And so you automatically, if you have any awareness at all, will give yourself a better posture during an appropriate carry than you will during a conversation. And that's what I do. I'm like, just because we cr created a situation. So right there in lies, we got the mobility, but here's your work. So they never thought that that farmer's carry was corrective at all, even though it was part of their workout. And you and I've done that both. We pull a lot of people off lifts and put them on carries. Why? Because it's less complex and gives us more feedback. If you can't even carry with a good posture, then I got to keep working on posture. But if I work on your posture and you carry right and still slouch on other exercises, I just delete those exercises for a while and do more carries. And now you own your new posture and we made it available with mobility. 
We want to take a quick moment to thank you for listening to the Movement Podcast. And to show our appreciation, we'd like to offer you a special promotion. By using the code POD20, you'll receive 20% off our upcoming FMS 1 and 2 virtual course bundle. To be clear, by bundling the FMS 1 and 2 virtual courses, you save $199, but we are giving you an exclusive additional 20% off that total. We're excited about this special event with FMS founder Lee Burton and FMS instructor Eric Degatti on November 6th and 7th. They will be teaching the FMS 1 and 2 live and taking your questions. So to get started on your FMS journey, register at functionalmovement.com slash events and use code POD20 to save that extra 20%. So now back to the episode. You know, Greg, I would say, um, talking about high intensity training, CrossFit, probably more so than anybody, brought high intensity training really to the forefront and made it popular, which is a good thing. Because again, I think there's a lot of benefits to this high intensity training. And there, you know, CrossFit's certainly controversial when you talk to certain individuals in certain places, but there's a lot of positives that can come out of CrossFit. Well, CrossFit, Peloton, there's highly motivated people showing you exercise things. But the problem that I've seen is there's way more invested in the routine equipment and development than there is the current state of readiness of the person. And I'm just going to read you a quote. Uh, um, Mark Twitt, uh, CrossFit produces a ready state from which more advanced or sports-specific training becomes very efficient. That is basically making a testament to a thing, not called fitness, because fitness is taken on by almost everybody who's thinking fit. But when I was going through kettlebell training with Pavel Setsulin back in the RKC days, and he's now at Strong First, there was a thing that came out of Russian physical development, and they use the term uh, general physical preparedness. They didn't say fitness because fitness has a lot of different tangents, right. but general physical preparedness to most people means an absence of risk factors and a ready state of balance at which you are ready for the lesson. Now, Mark didn't say anything wrong, and I do think that's a good goal, but I've never been able to make a claim that I didn't measure. And so if you're not measuring the ready state of people doing a new program or on a daily workout, then you're hoping that the program is generating it and you don't have a feedback loop. Well, and part of the problem I see is that they are just using the program to measure themselves, meaning did they do more reps today than they did yesterday? Did I did I hit this arbitrary goal? Uh, did I did I run around the parking lot five hundred times? You know that that's what they're measuring. And and did that actually give you what internally should be your goal? Yeah, and and the the sense of accomplishment can easily override maybe a little physical problem until it becomes such a big physical problem that you can't have uh, best yourself. Another statement here, and, and like I said, this, this, is, this is good for everybody to hear and it's good for us to hear. Every athlete we've worked with from the Olympic medalist to UFC legends has some glaring chink in his or her GPP. And it takes most two hours, two sessions on average to find these links. Now, you and I have found the same thing. We've worked with the highest end people in the world. We found small overlooked mobility and stability or general physical problems that were actually eroding their ability to do their thing. They're saying the exact same thing, and I think it's good, but here's what they said. We've got to do a couple of workouts to find those. 
All I ever said is, if I think somebody's a drunk driver, I'm going to administer test. We're not going to do a few laps around the block to see <laughs> right. if you're too drunk to drive. Yeah. And that's the problem. If we've got somebody we suspect this with, it, it's getting too risky to even run those two exercise sessions. 30 years ago, 50 years ago, we could actually run you through a few workouts and know if you had enough lead in your pencil. <laughs> yeah. The goals, though, of what's being accomplished, what's trying to be accomplished is very positive in bringing a group of people together to help motivate each other is extremely positive. And I think some of the issues or some of the problems can be is having people do certain things they're not ready to do. No, that's exactly right. And, and I'm going to give Alan Cosgrove props to this. One-on-one fitness may be something that's cost prohibitive for some and socially prohibitive for others. But if we can teach you how to shoot guns and drive cars in a group, driver's ed, that's a group exercise. We're going to safety class. We're going through driver's ed with multiple people. We go to a rifle camp with multiple people. If we can teach you to take two things that kill lots of people and do those in group training, we don't need one-on-one for bicep curls and lunges. And so I honestly think that the group aspect of CrossFit, the community and the interconnectedness is we're connected when we're not in the gym and we're vibing together when we're in the gym. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And they tapped into something that I think was lacking because fitness became this ivory tower conversation or this entitled personal trainer relationship. No, most people on the planet got fit working hard together, not being one-on-one managed or by some lecture from the ivory tower that talks about exercise but simply can't bring it on obstacle course day so yeah and the the other the other part of that is that in any community or any you know we're talking about fitness you know talking about crossfit here there are a lot of really really good crossfit you know instructors CrossFit boxes that do things the right way. And there's no question you got a lot of people that probably are just not doing things the right way that are taking what CrossFit fundamentally set out to do and pushed it a little too far, and that's where a lot of the, the a lot of the issues come about. I guarantee you, Greg, there's a lot of people that have the FMS certification sticker that don't really know how to do a movement screen the way you and I'd want them to do it. Exactly, exactly. So I I I I don't don't ever throw CrossFit under the bus. All I said is from a from the headquarters, if you don't have a tight feedback loop on your statements, and let me just take this over to food for a minute. Michael Pollan, one of my favorite writers about food, food consumption, um, has said the number one thing that we look for for a non-healthy food is a bunch of healthy claims. And if you get in the middle of the grocery store, you got packaging that says omega-3s and fiber and all this kind of stuff. But on the outside of the grocery store, in the produce aisle and stuff like that, it never says that on a banana or a carrot or a stalk of broccoli. It just doesn't say that. They don't. Natural things don't make health claims. And what I was going to say is, if you know uh, somebody's got a black belt in martial arts, even if they don't look fit to you, that says a lot about maybe I shouldn't mess with this person. And if you see a retired Navy SEAL that happens to not look too fit, I still wouldn't say mess with them. So they're not making any claims, but they have a lot of physical awareness and confidence and good routines like like we've seen, uh, you know, in, in, in kettlebell culture and stuff like that. Good routines that are done across a lifespan. Martial arts are done across a lifespan. Good runners can run across a lifespan. These are sustainable things that become a lifestyle activity and they don't tear you down. But we see so many people have a 
short tour through Orange Theory or CrossFit and we we downplay those. No, they were sold a goal that they weren't ready to even go. And so there were a lot more health claims associated with the anecdotes of people that have gone through than the real-time feedback. Show me my dashboard. My workouts look very much like a CrossFit workout, but there are certain moves that I don't do. And even if somebody said, we're doing this today, I'm like, I'm going to pick an alternative. And I have the self-awareness and right to do that. But the, the couple of things you've said there that I think is very important to to hit on is that you keep saying the word feedback. And feedback means you've set a baseline and the feedback is letting you know, are you improving? Are you making that baseline that you set through some type of testing, obviously movement screening, but any type of test for that matter, strength testing, power testing, are you achieving that goal? Are you making yourself better? You've got to have some feedback. Uh, deliberate practice was a concept or a statement that emerged from um, a couple of different uh, books talking about high-end performance. And the, the true champions in the world are born with a, a self-fulfilling need to practice, but practice with precision. So you and I, not being Greg Rose, would go out to the golf course and hit two large bucket of balls and think we had practiced our golf swing today. Greg's going to go out and look where all those balls landed. And if they didn't land in a manageable area, we wasted a lot of time. Better to hit a small bucket of balls with precision than two large bucket of balls for volume. And I honestly think that because we have such poor qualitative feedback on what is done in fitness and conditioning today, we have no way to measure ourselves but quantity. So five extra laps around the gym or five extra pounds on the on the kettlebell today must mean something. Well, they do, but without quality, it's probably not sustainable. And that's the problem. That's, that's, therein lies the issue is when you look at the board and you, and you see that you've got to do X amount of deadlifts or snatches or whatever it is, it's a good chance you're going to try to do your best to get there but those last few reps may not be what you want to do. Yeah. Every yoga session or martial arts instruction session probably lasts 30 minutes to an hour, depending on the fitness level and attention span of the people you're working with. But the, but the point is, we're done when the quality's right, not when the sets and reps are done. And for some reason, I honestly think that watching the clock in yoga class or martial arts class is not what it's about. But if you're in a fitness situation where you're watching a clock or counting reps, then you're basically taking something which should be the joy of movement or the joy of acquiring a skill, and you're turning it into sets and reps. And, and that's, the, that's the sad thing we've done with exercise, and we all got to own that. You know, kids play and get strong and resilient climbing trees and sometimes falling out of them. <laughs> and we don't count the steps and sets and reps and, you know, activity trackers on kids are probably going to come pretty soon, but that's probably the saddest part of where technology is going to take us with fitness. That'll do it for this episode of the Movement Podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you liked what you heard, please take a minute to subscribe, share, and review. If you want to learn more about our system and take the next step in your movement journey, visit us at movementpod.com. Until next time, remember to first move well, then move often. 